welcome back to my channel. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you're new here, welcome. I'm so happy that you found me and I hope you enjoyed tonight's episode. If you've been here before, thanks so much for coming back and spending some time with me today. And I really appreciate your love and support. I know that when the Mafia originally came over to America, they obviously didn't all go to New York. I've done a few episodes of dudes from New Orleans, Chicago, Philadelphia, etc. And the Mafia was all spread out throughout the United States. I believe the Mafia didn't even actually first pop up in New York, but popped up in New Orleans with activity from the Black Hand. But don't quote me on that, I might be wrong. But while there's mafia all over the states, most of the activity that went on, it went on in New York. I noticed that most of my videos are centered in New York and on the New York mafia, so I'm trying to broaden my horizons and look elsewhere because there's some seriously interesting mafia guys and mafia stories from other states. The guy that we're going to be talking about tonight is from Cleveland. I love stumbling on mafiosi that I've never heard of, never even like heard mention of. I think that's so cool. And I never heard mention of even anything that they did, but then you go and you look them up and there's a lot of really super interesting information out there and it's like whoa like if i hadn't been looking at this one random mafia guy from the cleveland mafia i never would have stumbled upon this guy so i I love that stuff. Like, I love learning about new people that you never heard of. You never, you know, you have no idea who they are. So I'm excited to learn about him tonight with you guys. It's especially exciting when you get to see how the mafia was created and, and settled into that city and just came about. Personally, I find all mafia stories interesting. Obviously, look at what I do. But the ones that explain the rise of the mafia and explain how the mafia came about and are still thriving in that location, I find the most interesting. I love stories like, you know, Luciano and all of those because it explains where the mafia came from. And this one is one of those stories because we're looking at how the mafia originated in Ohio. So without further ado, let's go ahead and get into tonight's mobster. Leonardo was born on October 20th, 1884 in Licata. His parents, Angelo and Antonia Leonardo, had five children together. Joseph had three brothers, Dominic, Frank, and John, and he had one sister, Rosemary Leonardo. I just so happened to fall upon this girl's information up until today, and, and I've had the research done on this episode for a while, but up until today, I could not find anything to do with the sister. I couldn't even find her name. Thankfully, today, I did a specific search and it fell upon her name, but yeah, she's very elusive. She wasn't involved in his life at all, and you really won't find any information online about her. Good luck even finding her name, honestly. Sorry if you hear a little bit of snoring. My dog is dead asleep next to me on the floor, so there's a little corner of white in my video, and and that is my dog's bed and he is asleep. So if you hear some, some snoring, that's where it's coming from. His father, Angelo, was a sulfur miner in Italy and all four of his sons came and worked alongside. His father worked in the sulfur pits with Angelo Perello and his seven children. And all seven of his children were boys, obviously, because no girl was ever going to be expected to work in a sulfur mine. Like, absolutely not. Can you imagine having seven boys? That's so many boys. Like, that would happen to me 
I'm a boy person. Like, I'm covered in boys. I have boy dogs. I have boys everywhere. But seven boys, like that poor woman. She just got, she got gypped, man. No daughters, also. So the Pirello boys, they are Rosario, Vincenzo, Angelo, Joseph, John, Ottavio, and Raymond. From the looks of it, that's really all they did while they were in Italy, was just work at the sulfur pit. The Pirello boys and the Leonardo boys, they're growing up together. They're working in the pits together. They're kind of the same age, and obviously that fosters a relationship, and they all became really, really close with each other. Usually when you hear that somebody works works in a sulfur pit, you assume that they're, you know, blue collar, they're super underpaid, overworked, they're poor, they've got some shit going on. That is not the case here. The sulfur mines are run by organized crime in the form of both the Black Hand and the L'Onorata Societa. I think I got that right. If anybody knows how that's pronounced, tell me if I got that right, because I'm pretty sure I got it right, and that makes me super excited. Because I tried really, really hard, okay? I tried. L'Onorata Societa. See? I'm so good at that. Since both of the Leonardos and the Perillo patriarchs are working in the sulfur pits, and since a lot of their sons ended up going into organized crime, I'm gonna take a shot in the dark, and I'm gonna use some deductive reasoning here, Watson, and I'm gonna infer that both of the fathers are probably wrapped up in organized crime. Even though if you read about Leonardo, it'll say that him and his brothers were like legit people, and they were legit businessmen up until they hit a certain point like no we all know how that goes i hate to break it to you but you're not not a criminal just because you haven't gotten caught yet it's not on paper that you're a criminal but you're still a criminal i can guarantee you those boys are out there committing crimes and involved in the mafia just because they never got arrested that is more a testament to the way that they had the police in their pockets than the fact that they were not out there committing crimes like let's be real here they were in the mafia they were out there doing crimes and shit if you guys know anything about the sicilian mafia in sicily like these boys are literally born and bred and groomed from the day they're born on how to be in the mafia and i definitely think that's what happens here i think all of these boys the perella boys the leonardo boys they're all brought up from a very young age to be in the mafia and the omerta idea is just across the board um something that they're taught from a very very young age so i'm willing to take a shot in the dark and i'm fully willing to say that they were doing this for a very long time so because these families are so close with each other it only makes sense that when leonardo headed to america in 1901 his family and the perello family follow behind and soon the entire group is all in america leonardo settled in new york city's little italy where his three brothers and his sister he also had Conchetta, his common-law wife, with him when he moved to America. Leonardo's relationship with Conchetta Paragone is one that, like most people from this time before, like, you know, Snoopy Media found out every single facet of every single person's relationship, it has a few different theories on how this relationship started. Conchetta said that she and Leonardo lived together since 1902, but other sources have claimed that she married another man and had three children with the other man, before leaving him and moving in with Leonardo in 1906. I don't know about you, but I kind of trust Conchetta's word more. I feel like she was there. She knows how the frick it happened. I don't know why she would lie, but everybody else says, like, no, they didn't get together until 1906. So I don't really know. 
Leonardo and Conchetta had five children together, but I can't find any mention on if they raised these supposed three kids that Conchetta had before, or maybe they were part of the five that they claimed to have had together. I don't think so, though, because their first kid wasn't born until 1911. So by either account, all of these five kids are Leonardo's because they got together in, in either story. It's either 1902 or 1906. Either way, they were together by 1911 when the kid was born. So I don't know if they raised these three kids that supposedly existed from Conchetta's first marriage. If that's the case, then they raised eight kids together, but they had five kids together. They had three boys and two girls together. Angelo, their firstborn, was born in 1911, and he was the only kid that followed in his father's footsteps, which is kind of surprising. You usually see a lot of boys in the family follow in the father's footsteps when he's in the mafia, but they only had one in this family. His mafia nickname was a lot like his father's. It was Big Angie. He ended up as the underboss of the family later on in 1976, and he kept that position all the way until 1983. It's pretty impressive. That's a long time to be the boss of the family or the underboss. They had Antoinette in 1914. They had Frank in 1917. They had Dominic in 1921. And they had Helen, who's also known sometimes as Ella in 1922. So Leonardo and the Pirellos, they're all in New York, in Little Italy, but in 1905, Leonardo picked up and moved his whole family, as well as the Pirellos, to Cleveland, Ohio, and built a life there. In 1906, Leonardo is arrested for aggravated assault and for stabbing someone, and he spent 22 months in an Ohio State Reformatory. So Considering 22 months, this would put it about 1908. When he got out, he was accused of robbery, but there was no real evidence, so charges were never officially pressed against him, but all the cops, everybody knew that he did this. Since charges weren't officially pressed, dates aren't really on the record. You can't really go find anything out about it. But we can assume that the arrest happened somewhere around 1908 because all I see is like shortly after his release from prison. So I'm assuming it's somewhere in 1908. The following year in 1909, he was accused, but again, not indicted for robbery. So now he has spent 22 months in jail. He is accused of, and the cops all know, that he's pulled two robberies by this point. Somehow, with all of that information in place, Leonardo is made a naturalized citizen on August 14th, 1914, which is wild. Like, how the hell do you do a 22-month stint in prison and have multiple robberies that you're being accused of and still get to be a naturalized citizen. That's wild. I mean, hey, it, it's a different time. People were, like, way easier to pay off back then, so I'm sure that that's what happened. But still, like, can you imagine that at this time? I feel like even if you were a citizen and you went to jail like that, like, they'd kick you out of the country. So how he pulled this off afterwards is crazy. In 1916, he got into an argument with someone that ended up with him shooting and killing the man. Like, this man has anger issues. When he was brought in front of a grand jury... They declined to charge him since the evidence that they had against him was insufficient. But, like, talk about a Teflon frickin' Don. Now, the police are looking from the outside, and they see a huge amount of robberies that are starting to stack up around this organization that Leonardo is involved in slash running. They're fingering him for robberies left and right. They know that he's doing this stuff, but let's face it, out of four things that they've come after him with, they've only gotten him on one. The one that they got him with wasn't even murder. They just got him on stabbing someone, but the guy lived. So, you know, 22 months, you could eat 22 months, but there's 
three robberies now at this point that they know for a fact was pulled off by him, and all three of them have insufficient evidence. So let's talk about what's really happening here. Is it that the police are really so stupid and so inept that they're unable to get a case against him? No, that's not it. It's that whatever organized crime syndicate that Leonardo is involved in at this point when the media is reporting that he's not a criminal, he's just doing... No, he's in the mafia at this point, and they are finding jurors and they are paying them off. They're finding police officers to go and lose evidence. They're 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 pulling this off together. And everybody's sitting there like, oh yeah, he was just committing robberies. He wasn't in the mafia. Yes, he was. He was in the mafia. He wasn't a gang. I don't think by this time the mafia was like officially a thing, but he's in a gang and they're pulling off him getting away with murder over and over again. That's to say that the cops, yes, they know that Leonardo is pulling crimes left and right, but there's really nothing they can do about it. So they have to just kind of sit back and watch and hope that one day he slips up and they can bring something against him that just can't be argued no matter what. Leonardo starts working at commission houses where manufacturers and producers of beef flowers and poultry and fruit and it's just like a kind of space that everybody sells their goods so people will sell flowers you know it's like a flea market but like on the street kind of like a street fair figure think of a street fair that's where he's working this is really popular back then especially in italian neighborhoods like even in the movies you always see them like walking down the street and there's street vendors that they're buying from so just picture that and it's especially popular in italian neighborhoods and immigrant neighborhoods because a lot of immigrants can't afford to open up their own storefront so they'll just set up a booth on the street to sell their merchandise because they want to sell stuff they just can't afford like a storefront you know a whole thing so they just set up a little booth so leonardo is selling fruit at these commission houses and he actually becomes pretty successful from it. He makes a decent living and he's pretty well off and comfortable financially during a time when most of America and 99.9% of Italian immigrants are barely surviving. Now, I'm a smart human being who is perfectly able to use this little thing we call common sense. So the books are going to tell you that he was not involved in organized crime until after he arrived in Cleveland. You're just supposed to believe as a sane, intelligent, graceful human being that during the Great Depression, when people are literally dying of starvation, that this man is doing so well from selling fruits on a stand on the side of the street. And he's he's so well off and wealthy from this that he's able to open a whole ass confectionery. Like bullshit. But... That's what you're supposed to believe, so let's go with that. He had a little stand that he sold fruit from, and the fruit sales were so good that he was able to open a confectionery. It doesn't make sense that he would be selling fruit when other vendors are starving to death, and plus, it's pretty atypical to see someone just living a completely normal life and then all of a sudden they're not only in the mafia but they're running a family even though i can't find anything online to corroborate what i'm saying let's all be adults here let's all be intelligent together and know that he was in the mafia or some kind of gang that is orchestrating all of this for him some kind of tomfoolery is going on here guys 
So the word starts to spread that prohibition is about to come out. Alcohol is going to be made illegal to produce and manufacture and sell in the United States. They know it's coming and everybody who is even a little bit involved in crime is drooling at this. They are so excited because they know that everybody, not not just criminals, everybody in the United States, upstanding citizens who would otherwise not ever commit so much as a sin, no less a crime, they're all going to be breaking the law to get their hands on some alcohol. America is not going to stop drinking alcohol. All this prohibition means is that they're going to pay so much more money for it because it's illegal and it's harder to come by. And criminals know they're about to make a lot of friggin' money here. During this time in New York, we see a lot of guys bootlegging, uh, making alcohol stills, importing alcohol from other countries, like the whole nine yards. They're getting ready. They're all getting involved in every way, shape, and form and getting set up to sell alcohol once it becomes illegal. Leonardo got involved in a different way. He got a little creative. He knows prohibition is coming, which means there's going to be a ton of guys opening stills and manufacturing alcohol, and a bootlegger is a dime a dozen, okay? Like, there's a million bootleggers out there. There's a million people who are going to be illegally manufacturing alcohol. It's almost impossible to thrive in that environment because there's so many of them. Corn sugar is one of the most used ingredients in illegal alcohol production, and while everyone else out here is scrambling to make illegal alcohol and building their millions of dollars worth of, you know, distilleries and warehouses, Leonardo's out here and he's like, nah, screw that shit. He makes a legal component of the alcohol making that can't be busted. There's never once been a prohibition agent that comes in and shuts down a sugar factory. Leonardo formed a street gang, and later on they would come to be known as the Mayfield Road Mob. He didn't create the Mayfield Road Mob, but he created the group that later took over the Mayfield Road Mob. Salvatore Tadaro, or Black Sam as he's known around town, is another Sicilian immigrant into Cleveland, and he's another man that just followed Leonardo to America. He was born Augusto Arcangelo in Lakata, Sicily, where he and Leonardo grew up as boyhood friends. So he's in he's friends with the Pirellos, he's friends with the Leonardos, he's just they they were all really tight as kids. If you ask me, Tadaro's a freaking moron. How do you change your name from Archangelo to Tadaro? Like what Archangelo is such a cooler name. It sounds like the Italian version of Archangel and like I don't know about you, but if my name was Archangel, I would be bragging like crazy. Like, all growing up, that's all I would talk about. Like, yeah, my last name's Archangelo because, like, you know, I'm godsent, you know, and <laughs> pull some shit. And this man's out here like, oh, that's not even that cool. I'm going to go ahead and change it to Tadaro. Like, so Tadaro and Leonardo had been family friends all the way back in Italy, and he emigrated from Italy to America only two months after Leonardo did. So obviously he got on the Pirello bandwagon and he followed Leonardo over as well. Todaro headed straight to Cleveland, Ohio when he entered the United States. So he didn't have to go through what the Pirellos went through, you know, going to New York and then all moving to Ohio. He had gotten there after they had already settled in Ohio. So all he had to do was go straight to where they had already settled. So now Todaro is now in America and he's in Cleveland where everybody's already operating and Leonardo immediately puts him to you. He put him in place as the night watchman of the flats, and the flats is like pretty much Cleveland's version of the Brooklyn docks. Like, you know how in Brooklyn, the American mafia is in control of the Brooklyn docks? Well, the flats 
It's in Cuyahoga Valley neighborhood, which was put on the map by John D. Rockefeller's oil company, steel mills, and large lumber yards that lined this river. So it became very prosperous when John D. Rockefeller hopped in and was like, hey, I'm gonna put all sorts of industry here, and now it's a thriving industry town. The West Bank is home to the city's Irish ghetto, and it's used for import-export into the city, so obviously they're able to more easily import and export illegal goods. Todaro is now tapped to run the Leonardo confectionery for him later on, and we're gonna get into that a little bit more later, but I mean, nepotism is a great thing, you know? It, it pays to have friends. If you talk to people, a lot of them will tell you that it's a simplistic idea to say that prohibition created organized crime in America. A lot of people will say that. No, that's simplistic. That's just not true. It's not the whole story. I will tell you that anybody that tells you that is simple. And they, they don't understand the true scope of what exactly went down during prohibition because it's crazy. The hundreds of millions of billions of dollars that went into the illegal manufactured sale and consumption, you know, transport of not only alcohol, but every facet of making the alcohol. It effectively created a market for organized crime to be created and to thrive within. Leonardo is a wonderful example of this. If you're looking at it purely from a textbook standpoint, Leonardo was an upstanding businessman until prohibition comes and then he gets into bootlegging so if we're looking at it from you know oh the books know everything and they say that he wasn't involved in crime well then this is the perfect example of prohibition creating a criminal prohibition did not only span from 1919 to 1933 as history teaches us i went over this in my big jim calissimo episode but let's go over it again just in case that you haven't viewed the episode so i'm gonna go through it really fast on january 17th 1919 prohibition officially became a law. Prohibition was a ratification of the American Constitution. So it wasn't even like just a law that the lawmakers put in place. They literally ratified the Constitution. The 18th Amendment, to be exact. And it banned the manufacture, transportation, and sale of any kind of intoxicating liquor. The ban was put in place because of religious ideation. Laws had been put in place in some states as early as the 1820s and 30s because a wave of religious revivalism and perfectionist movements came around and they were like, oh, we don't like alcohol. So some of the states had already made alcohol illegal way before prohibition was even spoken about. By the time prohibition became a federal law, alcohol was already illegal in a lot of states. Like, it's it's surprising nobody's taught this before. Even before prohibition started, illegal saloons are popping up all over the place, and a lot of those saloons see a lot of traffic mainly from immigrants. Alcohol was starting to be seen as being associated with crime and morally corrupt behavior. Americans, they suck. They always have sucked. They always will suck. And they're just snobs. They start to like look down their noses at immigrants. You know, they're better because they have been here a little longer. Like, let's be real here. Unless you're a Native American, you are not from America. You're an immigrant or you're parents or your parents' parents. Somebody's an immigrant. So to put your nose up to immigrants because they came over later than you, you're just dumb. 
So Americans are, you know, they're snobby and they're like, Ugh, those illegal immigrants are drinking. And that's the perfect example of what I'm talking about. Illegal immigrants do it. We should not do it. So they're they're seeing this happen. They're seeing these illegal saloons pop up and they're pretty much using it as an example of like, oh, look, alcohol is bad. Look at what's happening in these illegal immigrant markets. The saloons are popping up and it's so terrible. At the same time, any politicians that wanted to win the vote of illegal immigrants or even legal immigrants, any kind of immigrant, they would be found at these illegal saloons and they would make promises in exchange for votes. They would promise to do favors. They would make job offers. They would help with legal assistance. So anything that they could do or promise to get somebody's vote, they would do. This leads to separate factions that are warring with each other, as we always see in American history. It's always, always been a thing that there's two separate factions that are at war with each other, and everybody thinks they're right, but there's never been equality in America. Let's be real here. Today, we see, like, you know, Democrats versus Republicans. We see people who hate Trump versus people that are riding around in pickup trucks and have flags and his face all over it. We have people that are pro-gun and people who want to see stronger laws be put in place to buy a gun. We have, you know, pro and anti-abortion. There's always going to be some kind of topic that Americans are going to fight over. It just is the way it is. It always has been. It always will. So at this time, the fight is between the wet and the dry population. Another huge contributing factor to making alcohol illegal in America is women, which I'm not proud to say that my gender had something to do with this. But to women at the time, alcohol is like this destructive force that comes in between their marriage. The Anti-Saloon League was established in 1893, and that was filled with women and it's just pretty much like hey my husband is not coming home at night and he's going to bars and he's coming home drunk and he hits me and I don't want alcohol to be legal because I would rather take the temptation away from him than just go find somebody that is not an idiot. I feel like it's the same thing as telling women what they can wear. You know, oh, you can't wear those spaghetti straps because men might get a certain idea. Like, maybe what they do is their problem, not yours. Like, maybe you shouldn't be asked to not wear spaghetti straps. Maybe men should be asked to keep their fucking eyes to themselves. But whatever. They were a very loud population, and them as well as a lot of other factions too. Factory owners are really in support of this because it would make job production go up a lot because people don't show up to work drunk. There would be less accidents. People would be more productive. There would be less call out. So factory owners, the rich of the country are really supporting this because they know that they're never going to not have access to alcohol. If you have money, you have access to whatever the hell you want. So making alcohol illegal in their minds is just going to make it so that the lower classes can't access it. And the lower classes, who are they? They're their employees. By the time prohibition was officially passed, 33 states had already made alcohol illegal. So while we're on the topic of I've been learning with these videos and I recorded a certain type of way and I had to stop recording that way, I'm just going to go ahead and let you know right now, I haven't slept in like a really long time. Like I'm talking like over 24 hours. Okay. So excuse me if there's a lot of edits in the next, you know, the rest of the video, because I'm literally... 
I'm running on like 36 something hours of knots and that's totally fine. I can handle it. You know, I got this. Bear with me and we'll figure this out. I will figure this out. I promise. The reason that I say that prohibition created organized crime in America is because before prohibition, really, you don't see organized crime. It doesn't exist. Like, literally, the director of the FBI is denying that this shit exists. Yeah, you have gangs here and there. Uh, you got your, your Irish gangs, your Italian gangs. You've got your, you know, your Bloods and your Crips and your, you know, those kind of gangs. You had the Mafia Camorra War, and that's fought between Italians from Sicily and Italian from the Camorra region of Italy. You know, that was a dumb war. But that war is between two warring factions. So, like, two gangs. So each individual gang is not the same thing as organized crime. Being in a gang is not being a part of organized crime. Organized crime is where different syndicates, the Irish, the Italians, the Jewish mafia, all of them work together to create an organized, like, a corporation of the underground world to get robberies, get, you know, whatever kind of crimes completed. So that's why I say I believe that prohibition created organized crime in this country because beforehand there were gangs, there were factions, there were, you know, whatever here and there. But when prohibition pops up, we see for the first time, we see organized crime where all the gangs are working together to get alcohol sold, to get alcohol manufactured, to get it transported. And it literally created this entire industry of organized crime. So that's what I believe. You can't tell me otherwise. I believe that Prohibition 100% is responsible for the entire emergence of organized crime in America. Beforehand, there was an Italian gang that was like, by very loose standards, they were organized crime, but they were called the Mayfield Road Mob. The mob that ran Cleveland's Little Italy neighborhood, it popped up around 1913. They weren't a successful mob or like, you know, mafia by what you understand the mafia to be. They mainly got by by like committing these like small acts, you know, little tiny robberies, like they'd hold up a 7-Eleven. Picture like that. Like that's how they're getting by. They're stealing cars. They're extorting people. They're collecting payments for protection. Black hand type of shit. Like not sophisticated at all whatsoever. They were competing against the Collinwood crew, which was another Italian gang that was like on the other side of town. So they were the enemies. But yeah, picture like Bloods versus Crips. That's what we're looking at when we're looking at these Italian gangs that are warring with each other. Organized crime, not like the five families, but you know, same essence. So everybody that's in crime at this time is considered small time. Like figure even Al Capone is considered a small time criminal. There really is no such thing as like large scale crime at the time. So until you see prohibition come around, there's no large scale crime. There's no big time or small time gangsters. There's just criminal. I know that's hard to understand as a concept because we're so used to the world where there's people that go and they stick up 7-Elevens and then there's people that run one of the five families in New York. And those are not even similar. They're not even a little similar to each other. But back then, they're all the same. They're, no one's doing big time shit. When Prohibition began, Leonardo was already in place as the head of this criminal faction gang thing. He was the second oldest of four brothers, so it's a little hard. Like, usually you see a group of, you know, seven Pirello boys, five Leonardo boys, and usually, like, you'll see the oldest or, you know, some standout character take 
control as the boss of the family. But for some reason, Leonardo is the one that takes control and he's the second of four boys. So it's a little weird to see him step up, but I think it's just like his personality. He's very, I don't know if it's like, you know, John Gotti type shit where it's like, I can't lead him. He's not going to be led by anybody. So you have to let him be a boss. Or if it's just like, yeah, he's a freaking genius. Why wouldn't we put him in place as the boss of the family? I don't know. Either one, he's the boss of the gang. And it kind of makes sense when you look at it in terms of Leonardo was the one that came by himself and made the trek to America, and all the rest of the group followed. So he's kind of the trendsetter. He's the leader of the group. And he's the one that, you know, oh, he chose to go to America. He chose to go to Cleveland. And everybody else is just like, I bet, like, I'm along for the ride. So the fact that he takes over as the boss is not crazy. It's not like this wild thing. By this time in Leonardo's leadership, he had built up such a rapport with, like, the rest of the mafia in the country. Angelo Palmero is the underboss of the family in Buffalo. He asked Leonardo to be the godfather of his daughter. So this is a big deal. He's he's close with these guys. Around the time that the Mayfield Road mob kind of became a thing, the Cleveland Syndicate formed as well. The Cleveland Syndicate is a group of Jewish mobsters who were doing the same kind of stuff. They're bootlegging, they're gambling, they're smuggling luxury goods. They're doing the same kind of stuff that the Mayfield Road mob is doing. They were really smart and they cut in other organizations. So like they, they didn't mind paying the Mayfield Road mob. They didn't mind paying, you know, the Irish gangsters. They paid other people to not mess with them. They were like, yo, just let us operate. Like, here, we'll throw you a few bucks. Stay out of our way. We'll stay out of yours. We're not stepping on your toes. We just want to, you know, we can all eat around here. So you can look at Prohibition as kind of like a timeline, okay? So it comes into effect in 1919, and it's super easy to handle in 1919. Prohibition is not even a thing in 1919, okay? They had taken at least a year or two before Prohibition actually became a law because everybody knew it was coming. So they had taken the year or two beforehand to stockpile. You know, they're going to other countries to stockpile. They're going and they're manufacturing all this alcohol and they're stockpiling it in a warehouse somewhere and they're not selling it. They're not doing anything with it. They're just waiting for these laws to come. So for the first few years of Prohibition, what you're really seeing is just their stockpiles coming out. They're not relying on some Joe Schmo that's cooking alcohol in his kitchen. That's not that's not the way that the first few years of Prohibition worked. On top of the fact that they have these huge stockpiles of alcohol sitting in a warehouse somewhere, and it takes absolutely no effort whatsoever to come up with this alcohol, the people that they put in place to uphold the laws of Prohibition were a freaking joke. They literally took people that, like, yesterday were looking at taxes and put them they're like okay you're gonna go and bust down these alcohol distilleries now and these guys are like what i've been sitting behind a desk for 15 years what are you talking about they literally took like irs agents and made them prohibition agents so these guys have no freaking clue what they're doing honestly they really don't even know what these laws mean they can't really uphold the laws without knowing what the laws are so the first few years of prohibition are a freaking breeze the cops are barely upholding it they're super easy to get into their pockets and on top of that it takes no effort. They already have the alcohol setting there and it's nothing, you know? This is the greatest thing ever. They're making super amounts of money for zero to no effort at all. 
It wasn't until a few years later, you know, they kind of assumed that this was going to be a temporary thing. But now we're getting into four or five years later, and this is still going on. This shit's still illegal. And they're like, whoa, we never thought that four or five years was going to go by. Like, this was supposed to be a quick thing. But it's been five years, and this shit's still illegal. And now we have to come up with this alcohol, even though we have no stockpiles left. Now, at this point, not only are their stockpiles running out, but the IRS agents turned prohibition agents, they're starting to get a hang of things. They learned the laws, they're watching the borders, they're intercepting incoming cargo, they're really getting on top of it. You know, they really are now busting down distilleries and they're really not so easy to get in your pocket. So things become a lot harder for them when you get around the year 1924. So now, as things are getting harder for any bootlegger or criminal that's involved in the manufacture and sale of alcohol, the Leonardo's start supplying corn sugar to all of Cleveland's bootleggers. Leonardo put Joseph Perello in place as his top lieutenant, and Perello ran everything on the ground from the early to the mid-1920s. So he's in place for a really long time. This man knows what he's doing, and he does his thing well. And even though it's starting to get harder, there's still a smooth sailing operation. Things are getting more difficult. More cops are popping up. They're a lot more diligent. They're a lot more hungry to get arrests. They know the laws. And things are getting more difficult, but they're maintaining. They're they're handling it. Their business is still up and running. They're still making a profit. With the Pirellos and the Leonardos together, everything is going fine. The Mayfield Road Mob, I'm, I'm going to call them the MRM from now on, because, like, honestly, Mayfield Road Mob, for some reason, it's so hard. So the MRM start working with the Cleveland Syndicate in a Luciano Lansky type of relationship. So the Italians and the Jewish guys, they're working together, you know, like murdering type shit. They're doing that to increase bootlegging operations because now we're getting to the point where, again, it's a lot harder to produce this alcohol. So they need to branch out and work with the other criminals in the area to get this shit done. The MRM does most of the bootlegging for the syndicate. They're moving a huge amount of quality liquor that the syndicate had gone and purchased. They got it in from Canada, and they would pretty much get it into America. And that was the syndicate's job. So the syndicate goes to Canada. They get the transaction done so that they can buy the alcohol. They ship it to America, and they get it safely to America. The MRM is the ones that are waiting at the docks. They grab the alcohol. They transport it to their warehouses or wherever it's going, pretty much like just protecting this alcohol, making sure no cops see it, yada, yada, yada. And this is a huge profit margin. And like these guys are stacks on stacks on stacks of money and they're splitting it between the two of them. Like it's a perfect little transaction that's going on, man. They got they got this shit down. When things start getting more difficult, when they start running out of their stockpiles, when they start becoming more dependent on independent distilleries that are literally creating the alcohol instead of like buying it from other places, once that starts to kick in, Leonardo is like, all right, listen, my bottom line is getting really fucked up here. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take out any competition that exists. Dude goes on a straight slaughter riot. Like, he just bodies everywhere, everywhere. Body, 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 body. He's killing people. And he takes over all of Northeast Ohio's alcohol production. Pretty much, if you are distilling alcohol, if you're getting sugar, it better be from Leonardo or you're gonna die and the person that you're buying it from is gonna die. Do not mess with Leonardo. He will kill you. He won't feel bad about it. I promise. By 1925, it's official. 
all stockpiles are gone. Nobody expected prohibition to go on this long. And any alcohol that's going out is all being completely generated by these distilleries, warehouses. You'll see it popping up in people's kitchens, but you'll also see these warehouses that are doing it on a gigantic scale but they're doing it illegal. So they have to like do it at night. They have to like do it in secret. They can't make purchases on the books. It, it has to be very secret. It has to be very under the radar because it's 100% illegal. This creates a huge illegal industry and it shifts the way that things are done in the underground world. Because before, most of the people are running around and they're selling illegal alcohol. That's where everybody is making their profits before. But now that there's no more stockpiles, what's the best way to make money? Making the alcohol. So you'll see a lot of people that go from selling the alcohol and then they shift their focus over to making the alcohol in the first place. Corn whiskey becomes the major alcohol choice for everybody in the area, pretty much everybody in the country. Everybody wants corn whiskey. A critical ingredient in corn whiskey is corn sugar. To make corn whiskey, you use either cornmeal or unground corn mixer. But when you substitute corn sugar for those ingredients, it's a lot easier to make the alcohol and it's a lot cheaper to make it. So sugar becomes the main way that people start manufacturing this alcohol. So that means that everybody that has now shifted their focus from selling alcohol to manufacturing it they all need to get their hands on large amounts of sugar and they're not going to go to like a giant corporation because a corporation's not going to sell a massive amount of sugar to like a person living in their house. It would be very obvious why you're purchasing that. So it needs to be manufactured in secret. So what do they do? Leonardo teams up with all his brothers and the Pirellos and they pool their money and they invest in corn sugar manufacturing. And they've been doing it a little bit, but now they're, they're seriously ramping up their making of this sugar. It gives the family a legitimate enterprise to claim. It cleans their money. It makes them allowed to live this high life without raising suspicion. And it embeds them in like the very center of this blossoming industry that's propping up around them in the manufacture of alcohol. But it doesn't give them the risk of prohibition agents jumping into their warehouse. You know, they're not going to lose millions and millions of dollars because the prohibition agents took down a warehouse because all they're doing is making sugar. You know, everybody needs sugar, especially during the Depression. I have heard that sugar was very hard to get your hands on during that time. So this man's not playing, man. He's He's got it figured out. He's smart. While the brothers were the financial backing of this sugar magnet, they put Todaro in place to run operations on the ground. So they take Pirello off the ground, they put Todaro on the ground. And Pirello, he just starts gaining more and more and more leadership in the family. But Todaro, as much as he has been this, this person that's orbiting the Pirellos and the Leonardos, he's not a family member. So they're giving him responsibility, they're letting him make money, but at the end of the day, he's not a family member. So while Pirello was doing the dirty work in the beginning because they were all getting their hands dirty, as this sugar magnet grows, they're taking the people that are important to them, like the Pirellos and the Leonardos, and they're moving them up to where they're not yelling at employees and shit. They're sitting in an office or they're sitting at their house just collecting a paycheck. 
So while the Leonardos and the Pirellos are the ones that are financially backing the whole operation, they're the ones that make the actual purchase of the warehouse, they get the equipment, they get the ingredients. So while they do that, they kind of like sit pretty and don't have to worry about, as I said, like yelling at employees and shit. And they put Todaro in place to do that. So Todaro's running the warehouse. He's doing the bookkeeping. He's the one that's like going and scouting out the location. He's finding the equipment for them to buy. He's like their business manager. As far as the sales end of the transaction, Frank Leonardo was the one that took that role. He was the one that would go find the buyers, like he would go find out who was running home distilleries, he would go find people that are running warehouses, anyone that's manufacturing alcohol, he's finding them and telling them like, hey, we sell sugar, you want to buy? So he would go into like the rougher side of town where they're making this alcohol, you know, in these like seedy places that the cops don't really go very often. And then he would take the sugar that Todaro manufactured and he would give it to them. So you got the Leonardos and the Pirellos that are the financial backing. You got Todaro that is running the operation. And then you got Frank Leonardo, who is a Leonardo, but he also is a good sales guy. The cool thing about this transaction is that the Leonardos get them like coming and going. They made the sugar. They brought it to the distilleries where it would be made into whiskey, and then the distillery sold the alcohol that was manufactured back to the MRM. Then the MRM would take the alcohol and distribute it and sell it out outrageous prices. They would sell them to like speakeasies and they would make a freaking killing. So they're literally selling them the material to make this alcohol and then buying the alcohol once it's completed. So it's they got a pretty sweet deal going on. Leonardo got his nickname Big Joe Leonardo from how literally big he was. He was six foot two and 300 pounds. That's pretty wild for somebody in the Italian heritage. Honestly, a lot of Italians, especially Italian men that I know, are really short little things. It's very rare to find an Italian man that's six foot two. When I think of Big Joe's appearance, I picture Lenny Montana from The Godfather. I don't know if you guys have seen that movie. I don't know if you can like think of this guy on cue. I'll put a picture of him up here. But yeah, I think of Lenny Montana because he looks very similar to Big Joe. To give you an idea of Leonardo's appearance, he was this gigantic dude that dresses in like super flashy clothes. He wears tailored suits. He wears diamond cufflinks. You know, he's blinged the freak out. This man literally used a diamond encrusted tie pin. Like the audacity. The audacity of this man. But you know what? He has the money. He always has on like, you know, these expensive rings and super flashy necklaces. So I saw not too long ago on my Facebook, somebody was posting like, is it normal for their Italian friends to have jewelry at like a really young age? And it's so funny because it like triggered this thought in my head of this little ring that I had when I was first born. I was just born. They gave me this ring and I wore it like home from the hospital. And it was one of those rings. Like it was an expensive ring, but like it, it, it opened and closed as you grow. Cause like, obviously I was a newborn and I was getting rings and necklaces and stuff at like two months old. Like, yes, it's, I, I had to tell him like, yes, absolutely. It is fully normal for your Italian friends to have necklaces and bracelets and rings at two months old. 100%. These rings, like, I literally still have mine. It's the size of a freaking Fruit Loop. Like, literally, picture it, like, that big. But you know what? 
there I was, baby, blinged the frig out. And I'll take it, you know, like, I, I like it. It's, it's a really cool keepsake to have now that I'm old. He also has some serious issues with his eye. It was never officially diagnosed exactly what was wrong with it, but it caused some severe loss of vision in his eye. They did everything they could, and every single intervention failed, and he just couldn't see. He went to get surgery in Boston in the mid-20s, but he still ended up completely blind in his right eye by the end of his life. So no matter what he did, he tried, he went to every doctor, he had every surgery, and he still ended up seeing absolutely nothing out of his right eye. He also lived in the best of the best. In 1925, he had a home designed and built for him at 13700 Lackmere Boulevard that cost between seventy dollars and $75,000, which would be about $1.08 to $1.16 million in today's current. So this man is living lavishly. And again, it's okay that he's living like that because he has this sugar confectionery that is doing all sorts of crazy business. It's not one of those things where you're not reporting. He's reporting income. So it's okay that he goes and has this house. Nobody's questioning nobody's looking at it like you don't even do that much how are you having a house like that he reports it calm down i know you were worried but he got it this man is no al capone he's not going down for tax evasion he knows what he's doing one thing the Linaros were not is broke. They would offer credit on the arm to all of these distilleries, so there's really not any upfront cost to get an operation up and running. They made sure that they never had a surplus of sugar, and they never had nowhere to manufacture it. If a place didn't exist to have it manufactured, they would pay somebody to get all the materials that they needed. They would pay someone to do that, like, you know, give them credit on the arm. They would just finance somebody starting a distillery. By using this method, it was actually really convenient for them. They got to charge a VIG to anybody that accepted the credit. It made the distillery super loyal to them because, like, they're looking at it like, I wouldn't even have a business without you. Like, I owe you everything. And it makes sure that there's plenty of distilleries going on all the time. So, like, let's say prohibition agents bust down one distillery. It's not going to put them out of business. It's not going to cost them millions and millions because by them financing person A, person B, person C, person D, if person B gets taken down, it's fine. They have person A, C, and D, and they're good. They're Gucci. They're not running out of, out of product. And the people that they're offering credit to, they're not rich. They're not sitting pretty. They're offering these services to people that don't have a dime to their name. Remember, we are in the Great Depression right now. So somebody coming up to you and you're in the Great Depression, I'm talking you can't afford a loaf of bread. You have three kids that haven't eaten in three days because you cannot afford to get food. You have all of that going on. And now somebody comes to you and they're like, hey, I'll give you three grand to go out and buy equipment to become a distillery in your kitchen. And we'll give you money for every pint or whatever of alcohol that you produce. You are going to jump all over it. Another advantage to doing things this way is that it made the cops really worried to take down any distilleries. Prohibition agents going in and taking down a multi-million dollar distillery, that is like headline making, you know, that's that's the stuff that cops get praised for. Oh my God, you're keeping these streets clean. But when you have these people that are struggling to put food on their table and you see prohibition agents going in and taking these down, these people are also, again, very loyal to the Leonardos. They will never steal. They will never do business on the side. And if they do, they know that they'll get killed for it. So it's just, it's a really good situation that they have going. The scheme that these guys have going, they're doing every 
part of the process except actually manufacturing the alcohol, it is brilliant and it is working. They are making a shit ton of money, more money than they have any idea what to do with. So even though the gang has this massive amount of money coming in, it's just not enough. It's never enough. Leonardo starts to sniff out some other people that are in the same line of work that he is in the same area that he's in. So now he has competition coming in on his turf. Even though he's making millions, it is not okay if anybody else operates and makes even a dime in all of Northeast Ohio without paying him or being working for him. This whole thing, like, it makes me think of, like, you know how MGK wrote a diss to Eminem? And he says in it, and he's like, you gotta ask her, damn, can anybody else get some food in their mouth? Like, I feel like this is exactly the same situation. Like, bro, you're running a shit ton. You're making it more than you know what to do with. Like, can I get some food in my mouth, bro? Can I get some money? Shit. You need all of it? Like, chill. Let me, let me eat. But he was having none of it and nobody could eat but him. If you stepped on his grounds and you did anything even remotely similar to what he was doing, which is including, don't forget, he's making the materials, like the sugar, the stuff that you need to make alcohol. He's transporting the alcohol he's selling the alcohol unless you're literally just making alcohol and not selling it not transporting it not doing anything else you're in serious trouble with leonardo unless you work for leonardo by 1925 leonardo is now known as the sugar baron he is bringing in five thousand dollars a week in 1925, 1925, he's bringing five grand a week. I would like to make five grand a week right now. I can't, that would, that would put me in a very nice position. But this man's bringing it in in 1925. If this is 2021, it would be the equivalent to $100,000 a week. Imagine, that is more than most people make in two years. I mean, like the average salary of uh, the average American, I believe is $50,000, okay? So that's two years salary this man is making in a week but still no matter how much that comes in it's not enough and he goes on a new rampage and starts killing more people because people are starting to test him you know they're like he can't be the only one around here that's allowed to sell alcohol this is ridiculous we want to make some money too so they they grab their bowls they're like you know I'm, I'm gonna do what i want if i want to sell some alcohol around here bro you need to chill you need to sit down let me make a tiny bit of money i'm not trying to make this whole huge system but i just want to make a little money and he's like nah you're dead and he's just going around killing people bodies are dropping everywhere the problem with that is that when you start having that many bodies pop up it's gonna get in the way of your legitimate business the situation of killing people because they're operating on his turf is becoming so normal and like so commonplace that they literally came up with like a fee for this situation. So they have hitmen that are charging $25 per kill, which is about $400 a day. So they're literally taking people's lives for $400, like bro. And this is all just because like they're doing the same thing he's doing in the same area. So he's just brutal at this point. So he starts to get it under control. People start to realize like, okay, I'm gonna die if I don't cut in Leonardo. So let me just work for Leonardo. It's easier. Like this man's going out and hiring a million people People to distill the alcohol I'll just be one of those million people way easier than turning up dead like my you know sister brother aunt 
dead, bleh. You know, a whole lot of people died. So they know people that died from this shit. But people start realizing that they don't really need the MRM. They can do it without them. They realize that they can go to local speakeasies. They can start selling alcohol that they produced directly to the speakeasies. And those guys' bodies start showing up as well. Even speakeasy owners could get it. If they lowered their prices to compete with nearby competition, if they start standing out as, like, a cheaper way to do this process, body on the road. Goodbye. You're dead. Anyone can get this smoke from Leonardo. Leonardo and Conchetta's relationship ended in 1925, which was pretty easy because they hadn't ever gotten officially married, so... They just split up, you know? They broke up. They were boyfriend and girlfriend. Like, they called each other husband and wife because they were commonly married. But they never got married on the book, so it took nothing to split up. I think that might give a little merit to the idea that she had a husband beforehand. Remember I talked about that in the beginning? I know you're paying attention. What I'm doing is reminding you of what I brought up before, okay? So, before... I was talking about how there's theories that she might have had a husband before Leonardo. And this brings it up, and this makes me think that maybe she did, because why else would they never have gotten married? It doesn't make any sense. They should have gotten married. They have kids together. They're living a whole ass life together. They came to America from Italy. There is no reason there's not a marriage on the books for these two, unless she was married before had kids before, and wasn't able to get a divorce from the first guy. So, Leonardo and Conchetta, regardless of the fact that they had been together forever, their relationship ends in 1925, and Leonardo married Fanny Lanzone on September 8th, 1925, in Sandusky, Ohio, and she moved in right away. So this man was not wasting any time. He was like, yeah, you're out, new bitch in, like... And, and he got married on the books. That's why I'm saying there's like, it's not like he was against marriage. I'm telling you, she was married to a dude before she lied and said like, no, I never do that. But like, yeah, she had a husband on the books, which is why they never got married. Cause he's married quick. Like he's married the same year. Fanny was an interesting one. Only days earlier, 19 to be exact, Fanny had a husband in Angelo Lanzone. Apparently, Angelo had attacked Fanny and her 15-year-old daughter Angelina with a hatchet. Fanny's mother, Frances D'Amata, stepped in and was like, uh, no, not today, Satan. You dead. And she bodied that bitch. Go, Frances. Angelo Lanzone, is no more. Like, okay, attack my daughter with a hatchet, I'm taking your life too, you know? Like, I go, Francis. So now later on in life, Fanny comes out and she's like, yeah, I really never wanted to marry Leonardo. I don't know what prompted her to say that. I think it's because they split up and, you know, she's got her nose up in the air. She's mad. So she's like, yeah, I, I, I really never wanted anything to do with him. I don't, sh I don't know if she was like, oh yeah, he took me hostage. I don't know what the story was. Maybe? Getting with him was a way to keep her mother safe from catching a murder charge. Because, like, he's powerful, you know? I don't, I don't know. I'm not, like, an expert here, okay? I am telling you guys what I read. I tell you what other people say. So, either way, she comes out, she announces that, cool. But either way, whether she wants to be there or not, by the fall of 1927, Fanny is living in St. Louis, Missouri, and she would claim that Leonardo threatened to kill her, which is the only reason she even got into a relationship with him in the first place. So, while they're together, Leonardo also has a sneaky link. When he left for a trip to Italy, he brought home a plus one. He brings home Constantina Ballone. Ballone is a 26-year-old knockout. Like, this girl is gorgeous. 
Constantina Ballone was a 26-year-old absolute knockout. Like, girl is gorgeous. And she comes back to America with Leonardo, and they carry on this little extramarital affair they got going on. Leonardo got her this crazy decadent apartment with, like, stupid expensive furniture. It's in the best neighborhood. The works. He gets her everything. So yeah, they meet in Italy in 1926. And she comes to America with him. He finances her whole life. The only issue was that Constantina was actually married when Leonardo met her. She ended up getting deported back to Italy in 1927, which is only a year after she got to America. But it's okay because, you know, Leonardo's dead by this point anyway, so it's fine. At this point, the MRM is starting to take on the characteristics of, like, a modern-day family. They start to pay off judges, they have, like, cops and politicians and lawyers all in their pockets. They would donate money to get any of their people that had been arrested out of jail. They promoted people within the family, and it legit starts looking like an actual business. It became, like, a family where you would be promoted to capo, like, it was the exact same situation. The MRM started to spread out to nearby territories. Down in Akron, Ohio, where Frank Bellini and Michael Corcelli were running the liquor and distilling operations, Leonardo started to move in to sell corn sugar and gain some respect and notoriety in the area, because he really didn't have any at the time. As Leonardo gained more and more power, he came to be known as the boss of the Cleveland Mafia. He moved to New York for a short amount of time. He didn't stay there very long, but during his time in New York, he became close with a bunch of really big-time mafiosi. Nicola Gentile, who is known for his efforts in keeping the peace during the time that they were creating the commission, and Salvatore Toto D'Aquila, a gangster who once belonged to the Morello gang, he began his own faction, which would later come to be known as the Gambino family. They both hop on board with Leonardo. They are fully in support of Leonardo's possession of Cleveland. They, they love it. They love Leonardo and they're fully behind him. Nicola Gentile referred to Leonardo's organization as the Predomino de Licates, or dominance of those from Licata. He got really close to Frankie Yale and Colasquito, the dude that created the family that would come to be known as the Bonanno family. He got close with Alfred Minio, Giuseppe Trina, Frank Scalise, and D'Aquila. Being friends with D'Aquila wasn't exactly the smartest move that he could have made. D'Aquila tended to get offended when people that he was close with or like people in his own family started gaining too much power. And then he would just turn around and kill them. His really close associate, Umberto Valente, was sitting there working for D'Aquila, minding his own business, being a good little worker bee, not fucking with anybody or doing anything wrong. And then one day, D'Aquila decides that Valente is doing too much. More people know Valente than know him, and that is just not okay. He is the boss. If he's becoming this powerful, it's not gonna take long for him to decide that he's gonna take D'Aquila out and just take his position. He comes at Valenti, and Valenti is like, wait, 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 whoa, whoa, whoa. I know you aren't questioning my loyalty. I would never mess with you. I would never go against you. How could you even think that about me? I'm insulted. Like, I'm hurt. I'm hurt. No matter how much he pled his case, D'Aquila is having absolutely none of it. He's like, yeah, see... I don't believe you. Morello is back out of jail. I got this dude, Joe Masseria, that I'm fighting for power. And I think the best idea is just to murk you. I, I think that's best for everyone involved. Valenti is like, yeah, um, no, let's not do that. 
Let's not kill me. Here, I'll prove my loyalty to you. I will go and I will take out the entire leadership of the Morello gang. The entire leadership, they're all gone. Valenti goes and he kills Morello's cousin, Vincent Terranova. So he's sticking to his word. After that, they go for Joe Masseria, but they're never actually able to get their hands on him. They popped off a bunch of shots, but Masseria was able to escape. Masseria was actually pretty well known for being attacked and always getting out of situations alive. Valenti takes his friend Silva Taglagamba, and they went against Masseria again two days later. Masseria again gets away, but Taglagamba got shot in that exchange. Two months later, Valenti makes another attempt. He kills both of Masseria's bodyguards and starts chasing down Masseria, who is fleeing for his life. And he gets him into this local millinery store. Now, Masseria gets away, and Valenti is like, holy shit, I am never gonna get this man. I am never gonna catch him. It has been two months. It has been three assassination attempts. I still haven't caught him. I'm never gonna get him. And Diaquila is gonna turn against me because I can't get this done, and he's gonna kill me. So Valenti comes to the conclusion that the only way to save his own life is to broker peace. He's clearly not gonna be able to take out Masaria, so this is the only option left. He sets up a meeting between the two families, and when he shows up, he realizes that nobody from his family is there. They're all supposed to be there, and he's the only one. So Valenzi turns around, and he's like, yeah, screw this. This is a trap. I'm screwed. I'm out. As soon as he puts the dots together in his head, Salvatore Lucania, someone who's later going to come to be known as Lucky Luciano, shows up and he starts shooting. Valenti goes running and it's like one of those scenes out of like the mafia movies. Like, he's running, he's dodging bullets, he's getting away. He makes it all the way to the side of a moving taxi, but... That right there is the end of the scene. Valenti caught a bullet and he died. Valenti's death is a huge downfall of D'Aquila. That day, D'Aquila lost a lot of his power. All of D'Aquila's top people start like realizing that being loyal to D'Aquila does not get you anywhere. You can be loyal to the absolute death. Valenti was the most loyal person ever, and he still got killed. It's not going to get you anywhere. It's not going to win you any bonus points. It's just going to get you killed. D'Aquila ended up having to flee Manhattan, and he went to live all the way up in the Bronx. And it's funny because this whole story reminds me a lot of what happened with Nikki Scarfo. The same exact thing happened to Nikki Scarfo. If you go watch my Nikki Scarfo video, you'll see the story of how his nephew was the same exact thing super loyal, always did the best for him. Scarfo decided he was going to kill the nephew, and everybody turned against Scarfo when he did this. D'Aquila did end up staying friends with Leonardo. Leonardo, like, never left this man's side, even though Leonardo sees that being friends with D'Aquila could really easily end up in him ending up dead. He just sticks by his side. He is his closest ally, and he's like, don't worry, bro, I got you. I'm here for you. I don't care what they say you're going to do. It's fine. I'm here. I got you. The whole point of, like, that whole, like, rambling thing is that Leonardo had the balls to remain friends with him. Like, that's, that takes balls. When everybody else in the world hates this man, Leonardo's stuck by his side, and that's that's pretty commendable. Everybody else is like, nah, screw D'Aquila. That guy is, like, this crazy guy that's on a power trip, and he's gonna kill everybody that's loyal to him. Screw him. He's gone. 
most of the people that were in his family ended up defecting and going to Masseria or going to be in the Morello gangs. But there's Leonardo sitting by his side, you know, just like, I got you, I got you. After being recognized as the official boss of the Cleveland crime family by New York and by all the surrounding areas in Ohio, Leonardo fell into step and started, like, being on the good side of being in the mafia. Yeah, his corn sugar business is thriving. He's making tons and tons of money bootlegging, but now he's starting to move into the role of, like, mediator for the mafia. You'll see that a lot in mafia bosses. They take care of beefs in their family, so, like, he's helping out. You're also starting to see him donate money to those in need. He's going and hanging out with, like, his powerful little friends in Little Italy. He's living the high life. Things are going great. Even though he's as powerful as he was, he also knows how delicate his reign is. It takes next to nothing for somebody to decide that you're too powerful, they want your position to take you out. It, it takes nothing. He knows this, and he starts to employ Charles Coletti and Lawrence Lupo as his personal bodyguards, and once he did that, you literally never saw this man without these two guys. Lawrence Lupo is a different Lupo than the Ignazio Lupo from the Gallucci video. I only mentioned that because, like, when I heard Lupo, I was like, wait, that name sounds super familiar. Gallucci. But yeah, they're not, they're not related. I checked. So now, Leonardo's been the boss of the Cleveland family for a while, and dude gets cocky. He's like, I'm powerful, I know it, it is what it is. I got the backing of New York. I got all this money. I am the shit. And now, as soon as he starts behaving that way, people around him are starting to get a bad taste in their mouth about him. They, like, start whispering amongst themselves, and they're like, who does this guy think he is? Like, he thinks he's God, he thinks he's God's gift to Earth, and he ain't shit. He's not doing anything. We're the ones out here on the streets, we're getting arrested, we're putting all the risk in, and this man's literally just sitting in his room doing nothing. Like, why are we doing this while he runs around like he's the shit? He's not the shit. So a huge amount of dissent starts breaking out in the group below him. The mumbling from people under him is just one of the many, many problems that starts cropping up. For starters, he's starting to lose a lot of money. And that's not just to one or two problems. There's a lot of different problems going on. One of the problems that's popping up is the fact that the last thing in the world that home distilleries worry about is quality. They don't care. You know, they're making sure that they're making a liquid that has a high alcohol content and they're selling it. They really didn't care how it tasted. They didn't care about the quality. They just made sure there's alcohol in it. And that's a problem for Leonardo because Leonardo makes top shelf sugar and top shelf sugar costs a lot to make. So it costs a lot more than someone that's making sugar in their kitchen. It's not true that people didn't care about the quality because these bootleggers are like, yeah, people don't care about the quality. As long as there's alcohol in it, they'll drink it. But it's not true. People start going and spending a lot more money to get liquor that's being imported from Canada rather than going and getting this alcohol that's being made in these kitchens. And these guys are bypassing Leonardo, going and getting sugar from these guys that are making sugar in their kitchen and it tastes nasty. And people are starting to be like, nah, that's nasty. I'll pay more money. Just go get me some good shit. Another issue that's popping up is that the cops are getting a lot better at enforcing the laws of prohibition. For the entire first half of 
prohibition, the cops are running around like chickens without a freaking head. They have no idea what they're doing. They don't even know who's supposed to be upholding these laws. But after a while, they caught on. They got the hang of it. More and more home brewers start to get arrested, and obviously that's going to have a huge impact on Leonardo's bottom line. As more and more people start to go to jail, they're taking those people that are in jail off the streets by putting them in jail. And they're also taking more and more home brewers off because those other home brewers that haven't been arrested yet are looking and they're saying like, oh shit, these guys are getting arrested. I don't want to go to jail. So it's getting harder and harder to entice anybody to make alcohol from their home. So Leonardo sees that these issues are popping up. He sees that this is an issue. So what does he do? He goes on a killing spree, of course. Bootleggers are starting to skim off the top. They're starting to sell alcohol that was made with sugar that wasn't his. They wouldn't report the income. They'd go around Leonardo. They're lying about how much alcohol they're actually selling. And Leonardo finds out. As Leonardo starts to kill these guys, obviously fear of Leonardo is starting to increase and it's working. People are getting more weary about like going around him and the MRM is starting to gain a lot more momentum. It's starting to gain a lot more power. People are starting to respect it a lot more, but it's also losing a lot more employees. Yet another problem that pops up is that Leonardo lost the Pirellos. The Pirellos, the family that came to America alongside the Leonardos, broke away and started their own gang. They started making sugar. They started hiring distilleries as bootleggers. They start doing exactly what Leonardo's doing out here to make money, but they're not kicking anything up to Leonardo. And they have their own thing completely separate from the Leonardo gang going on. Leonardo didn't kill them because they have such a long history and he still had loyalty for them in his heart. But as time goes on, a decent amount of people are starting to defect from the MRM and they're swinging over to the Pirello gang because the Pirello gang pays a lot. It's really easy for the Pirellos and other lifelong friends to leave Leonardo's side. Leonardo is not known for his generosity. He's known for a lot of things, but generosity is not one of them. He does not reward lifelong friendship and loyalty. Like that is not something that he respects. He doesn't pay out for it. And you got like Tadaro is running the entire sugar manufacturing operation and he is broke broke. I'm talking on welfare broke. If that's the story of the dude that has been friends with them since like birth and is running the entire operation, what do you think it's like to be just another employee of Leonardo's? He's paying very, very little to sugar manufacturers. He's paying very little to bootleggers. He's paying very little to home distilleries. He's super stingy. He's just greedy. And honestly, he has no reason not to be. Why would he pay a lot? Instead of giving people a lot of money, he just kills anybody that does anything that he doesn't like. Anybody that can even be conceived as competition gets killed. He has a monopoly on the entire city, so why would he pay a lot of money? This greed left everybody that worked with him with a really bad taste in their mouths about him, but again, there's really no other choice. It's work for Leonardo or don't work at all until the Pirello gang pops up. Once the Pirellos defected, another problem starts up. This is around the time that the problems pop up around Diaquila and Masseria. And Masseria just so happens to have a pretty large amount of family in Cleveland. And Masseria starts going after anybody that's even slightly connected to Diaquila. It's not enough to just go after Diaquila. He has to go after everybody that has anything to do with him as well. You ever had a conversation with Diaquila? 
Masseria is coming after you. Leonardo is very famously close with the Aquila, so he's number one on the chopping block. Masseria is a very bad enemy to have, and he did everything he could to completely undermine any sort of power that Leonardo has, and you don't want Masseria as an enemy, but he got him. I don't see it written anywhere, but I can pretty much guarantee that Masseria stepped in and helped the Pirello gang start their own gang and go against the Leonardo gang. I could pretty much guarantee it. In April of 1926, Leonardo made a very, 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 very bad decision. He sneaks away and decides to take off to Italy to go spend some time with his mother. His brother John stepped up to take control of the gang while he was gone, but it became pretty abundantly clear that Joseph Leonardo was the glue that was holding this entire operation together. I can't find anything about why he went to Italy. Maybe his mom was dying. His mom had to be dying. That's the only thing that would make any sense. Anything short of his mother was dying is just plain stupid. You got Masseria coming on one side. You got your lifelong best friends that just defected and started their own gang. You got a massive amount of people that you have killed recently. You got your entire gang that's just talking shit about you, ripping you apart left and right. Yeah, it seems like a great time to go on a vacation to Italy. Like, yeah, meh, fuck it, I'm out. Like, no, no, not a good idea, bro. Still, by this point, Leonardo still hasn't put out a hit on Pirello, any of the Pirello gang. Because, again, they were lifelong friends, there's some loyalty there, so nothing is go is in place against the Pirellos. The Pirellos moved their gang to Woodland Avenue, which isn't exactly next door to his own gang, so he's just kind of like, eh, this town's big enough for two, it's fine, everything's fine, I'm fine. As soon as he leaves the state, though, that relationship tanked. It was gone. Things got really, really heated between the two gangs because one of the Pirello brothers, Raymond, was arrested in a sting operation on a whiskey distillery. Raymond's brothers did everything, everything they could. They bribed, they stole, they did everything they could to get this man out of jail. But literally nothing was working. There was nothing they could do. So even though they had broken off and gone and started their own thing and were going head to head with Leonardo, there's only one place left to turn. The Pirellos went to Leonardo for help and they're just looking at it like, listen, Leonardo has every politician in this city in his pocket. He's the only person that can help us here. So the Pirello brothers show up on Leonardo's doorstep and they, you know, hat in hand, they're like, listen, dude, we know. We know we pissed you off by leaving. We know that's a fact. We know we fucked you over hard body, but we really need help here. Since you've been our lifelong friend, we really need this favor. Raymond's in trouble and we need help. Leonardo is still obviously super pissed about the fact that they're screwing him over and having a bad impact on his business. So he turns around to them and is like, listen, listen, guys, if you were still in my gang, this never would have happened in the first place. But if it did, I would have taken care of it for free. Since you ungrateful motherfuckers decided to go away and go dip out on me and start your own thing and screw me over, I'll take care of it for you. Don't worry. Listen, I got loyalty for you. I still got love in my heart, but it's gonna cost now. That'll be $5,000. Thank you very much. Joseph Perillo is more than happy to pay this $5,000 so that Leonardo will get his brother out of jail. He's like, yes, $5,000, done, done, done. I've paid so much. I've done everything. Nothing has worked. Five grand is nothing. Here you go. The problem arises 
when Leonardo disappears and Raymond is still sitting in jail. Leonardo has not called one person about him. Leonardo has not taken care of one thing. He just took the $5,000 from the Pirellos and decided to use it on his trip to Italy. So now the Pirellos are heated. They just paid this man $5,000. That is like $100,000 in modern day money and he takes off and runs. Are you kidding me? Of all the low down, dirty, shysty shit that you could do, this is the worst of it. The Pirellos are like, I bet, bet. You want to play that way? Fine, let's play. Now, the Pirellos are out for blood. As soon as they get confirmation that Leonardo had hopped the state, all bets are off. The war is on. They got one of their cronies, Mike Chiapetta, to go to all the home distilleries that are working for Leonardo and offer to sell them corn sugar at $1.31 less per pound than Leonardo is selling it for, which doesn't seem like a lot. But when you start to look at, first of all, the amount that each dollar is worth back then is a lot different. And second of all, you're selling hundreds and hundreds of pounds. So $1.31 per pound is a decent amount. Now, there is one rule and one rule only on the streets. And it's this. There is no honor amongst thieves. None. Zero. Of course, with the prospect of saving hundreds or thousands or hundreds of thousands, these distilleries immediately hop on the Pirello train. Within two weeks of Leonardo leaving for Italy, Pirello took control of over half of Leonardo's business. Leonardo finally made it back home in August of 1927. So he had been gone for like a whole year and a half. This man, this man didn't even say goodbye to anybody. He just disappeared and left for a year and a half. That's a long time. The first thing that he sees that he's like uber, uber pissed about when he gets home is the fact that Todaro had left his family or gang or whatever you want to call them. He is on some shit about that one. He's pissed. He's really mad. And he's like, uh, yeah, this guy acts like he just got to where he is without me. He didn't. I put him there. I made this man who he is. And he just leaves me to go work for the Pirellos. And like, now he's all rich. And now he thinks he's the shit. But no, you're not the shit. I put you where you were. I made you who you are. And that's not okay that you left me. Leonardo gets pissed enough that he ends up putting out a hit on Tadaro. He dresses it up by saying that it's because Tadaro abused Chuck Polizzi, a Jewish foster brother of Alfred Polizzi. Alfred Polizzi is a group member of the MRM. And Chuck Polizzi worked rackets with Al Polizzi pretty regularly. And he also worked with Lawrence Lupo. So Leonardo starts going on and on about how like all of a sudden he loves this young Jewish man and you know in his honor's defense he needs to have Tadaro killed but it just so happens that like Leonardo barely knows Chuck Polizzi okay it's a joke it's the the craziest nobody believes this for a second it's it's just ridiculous and stupid everybody knows what's really going on but He's just, like, going forward with it. And now people start coming to him and, like, yo, this is a really bad idea. Please do not insist on killing Tadaro. You can't do this. No matter how much people argued and begged, like, please don't go through with this. No matter how much people did that, he was still like, nah, screw that guy. I'm gonna kill him. I'm, he's dead. I'm, I'm coming for him. And people are literally, like, almost coming on their knees. They're like, listen, man, like, this is gonna cause a war. If you do this, it's gonna be the worst decision of your entire life. And he's like, no, I want him dead. End of story. He's gonna die. Full stop. That's it. He's dead. But finally, somebody was able to get through his thick, stupid skull. 
Nicola Gentile was the one that was able to like finally make him see the light because he went to him and said like listen if you kill Todaro I'm out have a nice life I'm not gonna have your back I'm not gonna have anything to do with you I'm leaving and everybody else is gonna come after you and you're gonna have no backing the next day after Gentile gave him this ultimatum Leonardo rescinded the kill order one of the most high profile murders that Leonardo ever ordered was two small time would-be ransomers that were in the area their names were Ernest J Yorkel and Jack Brown. Now these two idiots show up in Cleveland and they run around town running their big fat stupid mouth. They run their mouth to anybody that will listen about their plans to kidnap a local wealthy crime boss. They said that they were gonna get $5,000 out of him. And even though they never like mention Leonardo by name, everybody in town knows that they're talking about Leonardo and everybody's sitting on eggshells. They're like, oh, what's gonna happen? They're all just like excited to see what's gonna happen when these morons like think that they're gonna kidnap freaking Leonardo. When the two young guys' body showed up, on the street with half a dozen holes in each of them. It took the media absolutely no time to link the murders to Leonardo, and it was widespread news that he had these guys killed. His bodyguards, Lawrence Lupo and Charles Coletti, were both arrested for the murders of these two guys. Police don't have near enough evidence to even indict these guys, but honestly, at this point, there's so much public outcry and there's so much media attention that they really only arrest him because of the public. They have the media like, oh, we all know he killed them and the cops aren't doing anything about it. So even though they know, like, we don't have evidence, we have nothing to prove that these guys did it. And if we bring them to court, we're going to look like morons. But regardless of that fact, they still arrested them and it did not work out well. But at the end of the day, Lawrence Lupo and Charles Coletti are sitting in jail. At this point, now the streets know, you know, the streets talk and the streets know that Leonardo put out a hit on Todaro, and even though he rescinded it, it didn't really matter at this point. Masseria comes walking in, because remember, Masseria is waging a war against Di Aquila, so Masseria comes in, and he goes to Todaro, and he's like, alright, homeboy, listen. Listen, we're gonna have a talk, okay? Here's the scoop. This dirty motherfucker thinks he is so big, and so bad, and so tough, that he literally put a hit out on you. Like, the nerve. Yeah, Gentile was able to change his mind, but how long until he changes it back and you have a new hit out on you? So Masaria is like, yo, you're, you're worm food, dude. Ain't no change in that. Now, I would help you. I would. I really would. I swear. But I can't be out here, like, making decisions in a town that I have no power in. You want someone dead in New York? I'm your man. Give me a call. I got them dead real quick, but I can't be doing this shit in Cleveland. So you gotta take care of it. He goes to Todaro with this idea, but obviously the, the backing for that is because he can't take Leonardo down. He wants to make the Pirellos the main power in Cleveland, but people in New York would not be happy to hear that that he's out there making decisions in Cleveland. It's not okay. It's it's just not going to go down well. But if he's able to take down Leonardo and have it have nothing to do with him, it's going to be a huge stain on D'Aquila's reputation. So October 13th, 1927 rolls around and Todaro hits up Leonardo around 8.15 at night. And he's like, hey, buddy, listen, long time, no speak. 
I know that we've been in negotiations for a while so that our gangs can get along. I'm in the mood to talk right now. Do you want to come chill? And Leonardo is like, hell yeah. Like, I've been trying so hard to get peace made here. You know, I don't like you. I would like to see you dead. But if there's a chance that we can get our families to work together and we can broker peace here, I am down. So Tadaro's like, I bet. Cool, cool. Come see me at Octavio's Barbershop. Remember that Octavio is one of the Pirellos. I, I, I listed off the names of the Pirellos in the beginning of the video, but I thought maybe you forgot. I, I'm, I might just be underestimating you, but Octavio is a Pirello. So he's like, yeah, come to Octavio's Barbershop. So Leonardo is like really into this idea of making peace. He hasn't made any attempts to take out any hits on any of the Pirellos. So, like, he really wants to get along with the Pirellos. He's never wanted to kill them. He's always wanted to make peace with the Pirellos. So, like, yeah, he hates Tadaro, but the Pirellos have a special place in his heart. So, regardless of the fact that they have issues between Leonardo and Tadaro, Leonardo's here for this, so he goes to the barbershop. They had been spending months writing back and forth, talking on the phone, just doing everything that they possibly could to try to to get peace brokered between the two groups. A huge motivation for Leonardo to make peace is that he's walking around on eggshells right now. He's not oblivious to this whole thing. He came back to America and he felt that he was about to get killed soon. And he knew that his only hope was to make peace with the Pirello gang. In his mind, because he had never made any attempts against any of the Pirellos, peace was still possible. He could live with losing some of his power. He didn't like it, but he could live with it. But if he doesn't make peace with the Pirellos, he's not gonna live. So this is pretty important. So Leonardo grabs his brother John, who had been running this gang while he was gone, and he goes to the barbershop. The barbershop is located at 10902 Woodland Avenue. Now, he doesn't have any bodyguards on him, which is probably the first time anybody had ever seen Leonardo out and about without his bodyguard. But remember, his bodyguards had been arrested earlier that month in October because of the murders of those two kidnappers. So it's not so crazy that he doesn't have his security guards on him, but this is very dangerous for him to leave the house without them. John and Joseph Leonardo went into the back room of the barbershop where the Pirello gang usually hung out, played cards, you know, it's their little hangout. The two guys are like, you know, they're chilling in the back room, they're waiting for Tadaro, they're chilling, and some of the Pirellos come and hang out. Now, in the back room, they're talking about particulars of this, like, peace treaty, and they're trying to figure out a way to officially call a truce between the two groups. Angelo Perello was sitting there, you know, they're making idle chit-chat. They're, oh, has it been? Has it been? Yeah, great weather we're having. That kind of stuff. While they're hanging out and waiting for Tadaro or whoever was supposed to come, while they're all waiting, two dudes come in to the back room from the barbershop and light the place up. They open fire killing Joseph Leonardo. Joseph Leonardo was shot twice in the head, three times in the left shoulder, and two times on the right side of his body. John wasn't killed. He was shot in the left leg, and he was also shot in the stomach, but he did make it out of the shooting. The two gunmen take off, they're running away, and John chases after them, shooting. So now, here's, let me set the scene for you. John is chasing these two gunmen down, and these two gunmen are running. And I guess a light bulb, like, went off in these shooters' head, like, wait a minute, we just came here to shoot this motherfucker, and now we're running away from him? Like, no. And... He's, like, getting up in his head. He's like, what do, I, what do I look like? Some kind of punk? Like, why am I running away? Like, no. So he stops in front of the barbershop and waits for John to reach him. 
when John got to him, the gunman pistol whipped him and absolutely knocked him out. When he knocked him out, John lost consciousness and he died of blood loss on the sidewalk. There was a joint funeral for the two brothers. It all started off with a wake at John's home where about 200 mourners attended. The procession following the hearse consisted of about 500 people where they followed the hearse that had two silver caskets inside to the Calvary Cemetery where both of the guys were buried. The death of the Leonardo brothers sparked what is considered now to be the Corn Sugar Wars. This war is obviously about the revenge for the two murders, but it's also about the power vacuum that opened up when two mafia bosses died. This war that ensued after these two died took down two more Leonardo brothers and all seven Pirello brothers. Even though the war was called the Corn Sugar Wars, police said that Leonardo and his brother's death had ended, not begun the struggle for control in Cleveland. When Lawrence Lupo got out of jail, he is like, yeah, that that's my man, and I'm gonna step into his footsteps. I was in line. I was next in secession. I should be the next to take over the family. He was killed on May 31st, 1928. So like a year later, not even a full year after Leonardo was killed. Todaro took over Leonardo's business and he became second in command of the Cleveland family, but he was killed on June 11th, 1929 in front of the same barbershop that he had Leonardo killed at. If that's not karma, I don't, I don't know what is. Joseph Leonardo's son, Angelo Leonardo, and his nephew, Dominic Sospirito, killed Todaro, and Joseph Perello stepped in to take over as boss when that happened. So let me tell you how that happened. After Leonardo died, like most families of relatives that died that were worth like a shit ton of money, a fight ensued about what was left. And that's not even like just mafia guys. Anyone in the world, you know, any rich person, you always hear about like the fight over the estate. And that's what breaks out after Leonardo dies. Conchetta claimed that they were common law married since they had been living together since 1902 and they lived together until 1925. So even though it's not on paper that they were married, they did live together. They did have five children together. So she claimed to be the wife. Fanny resurfaces and she claims that she is the rightful widow since she was with him more recently and her marriage is on the books. But she was living in St. Louis, Missouri when he died. The lawsuit between these two women wraps up all of Leonardo's money, which is an estimated $200,000 at the time that he died, which is a lot of freaking money at the time. And this is between like cash and properties, it's all his assets. Even though their relationship had ended, Leonardo had continued taking care of Conchetta and their kids together, and when he died, Conchetta was about to lose her home. When things got really bad and like it was legit looking like she was about to be out on the street, she hit up Todaro. Even though when Leonardo died, Todaro and Leonardo were, you know, they were going at it. They hated each other. Todaro did step in and take care of Conchetta and her kids. The Mafia is actually pretty well known for that. Their taking care of the family of the people that they killed is such a normal thing. So Conchetta would make like regular visits to the barbershop that he was killed at. And the police called it the Pirello Corn Sugar Warehouse. So I don't know how that works. It's a barbershop, it's a corn sugar warehouse, but she regularly goes there to pick up her envelopes that are full of money to pay her bills. And she would show up in a black Chrysler Model 75 coupe. And Todaro would just, you know, come outside with this big ass envelope and hand it to her and she would drive off. 
at the time, while these transactions are happening, police are kind of freaking out about this. They're looking into whether Todaro is providing these envelopes for blackmail. They think that the Leonardo family is blackmailing Todaro, saying like, oh, we know that you killed Leonardo, and we can prove it. And if you don't pay me, we're going to prove it. It's still to this day questionable as to like what the situation was that it could have been the case that could have been what happened but i don't think so i really don't think that they were like blackmailing them with the law because first of all it's really common for the mafia to take care of the family of the people that they killed so it's not like we're seeing something that's not an everyday occurrence in the mafia like yeah he may have killed him but he's not about to watch his wife and kids get put out on the street like how would that look if the wife and kids of an ex-mafia boss are on the streets. Like, will anyone ever step into that position again? No. People don't mind getting into that life because they look at it like, oh, well, even if I die, you know, the person that killed me is going to pay for my family to live for the rest of my life. That is one of the big assurances of the mafia. So if the mafia sits there and sees Leonardo's wife and kids out on the street, nobody's going to want to do the shit that they do. It's going to be dangerous. So he continues to take care of her. So yeah, she's always pulling up in this car. And most of the time, her oldest son, Angelo, is driving the car. That makes me think even more that there was no blackmail at play because Angelo went on later to become the underboss of the Cleveland family. And you zero out of a million times, do you see a person go and blackmail somebody with the law and then later become the underboss of a family? It's just not something that happens. So Angelo driving her and being involved in this whole transaction lets me know that it definitely wasn't blackmail. I don't know where they got this idea, but it's next to impossible. Becoming a rat isn't a threat that somebody makes and then goes on to rule the mafia. It doesn't make any sense. On June 11th, Conchetta goes to the barbershop as usual to get her usual big, thick envelope, and her nephew, Dominic Sosperato, came along for the ride that week. All of a sudden, everybody around hears shots fired, and Todaro collapses on the street. He's dead. He had been shot five times through the window of this car, and the Chrysler sped off. Honestly, though, like, I, I gotta say, I find that super dope. Even though the relationship didn't work out between Conchetta and Leonardo, this bitch is ride or die to the death. She's like, oh yeah, okay, cool. You, you want to kill my man? Okay, I got you. Let me, let me show you what that looks like. Watch this, motherfucker. Angelo Shara, Tadaro's brother-in-law, saw the shooting happen, and he went to the cops and told the cops who was in that car that killed Tadaro. When Conchetta was arrested, she claimed to have no idea what happened. She wasn't there. She knows nothing. I don't know, man. I wasn't there. I have no idea what happened. Me? I would never go see... You're crazy. You're being silly. Cops went looking for Angelo and Dominic, but they couldn't find them. All three were indicted on first-degree murder. Conchetta's trial included something that I've never heard of before, and if you guys have heard of this, I would appreciate you letting me know, because I've never heard of this before. The court took the jury on a visit to the corner where Tadaro was killed. Have you ever heard of a jury being taken on a field trip? Like, I've never heard of it. I've never seen it. If you guys 
like, you know, if it's a, a regular thing in other parts of the country, let me know. But I've never heard of anything like that. Maybe it was normal for that day and age. I don't know. But that's what happened. They brought them to the corner where Tadaro was killed. The jury found Conchetta not guilty. And when that happened, all of a sudden, Angelo and Dominic reappear from the woodwork. I guess they're like, well, they found her not guilty. They can't find us guilty after finding her not guilty. That just doesn't make sense. By March of 1930, the probate court had resolved the lawsuit between Fanny and Conchetta and left all of Leonardo's money to Conchetta. But even though they made a final decision, Fanny continued to appeal the court's decision. The value of the estate skyrocketed downward after this huge fight. Because as Conchetta is fighting for the money, as she's fighting to get off on this murder charge, as she's fighting to get Angelo and Dominic off on their murder charges, and then... Angelo gets caught for having a concealed weapon on him, and now she has to fight that case. So all of this cost is coming out of the estate. By the time she actually got her hands on that money, it was down to only like 149k, and I'm willing to bet 90% of that was the property that they owned. Angelo and Dominic surrendered to authorities in February of 1930, and they pled not guilty to charges of murder one that were brought against them. A year later, exactly one year later, in June of 1931, Angelo and Dominic are found guilty of murder two. By November of 1931, both had won their appeal and they're back out on the streets. So they're doing only like five months of time thinking that they're guilty and spending the rest of their life in prison. In February of 1932, Rosario and Raymond Perello, along with their bodyguard, were murdered and the police considered Conchetta a suspect, but they never officially arrested her. So this woman is out for blood. She is avenging the death of her man. Like, she wasn't even with him. She left him so long before he died, but you know what? As somebody that would do anything for my ex that died, I... I... I give her all the credit, man. I really do. Angelo joined the crime family and became the underboss in 1976 after a mafia war broke out between Danny Green and the Cleveland La Cosa Nostra family. And he ended up maintaining that position until he was arrested in 1983. So that's a long time, 1976 to 1983. He's the underboss of the family. Angelo Big Ange, or Big Angie Leonardo, became a government informant after his time as underboss of the Cleveland crime family. He started his testimony with the following quote, My father was murdered by Salvatore Todaro in 1927. In revenge, my cousin Dominic Sosperado and I killed Todaro. Angelo's testimony included a lot of information about when he was inducted into the Cleveland crime family. Let me just say, his father would be rolling in his grave. His father literally taught him from the womb about Omerta, do not trust cops, do not work with cops, and this man turns around and becomes a government informant. I'm gonna read off some of the testimony that he gave at trial because it has a lot of really interesting information and I think you guys would be interested. He said, and I quote, I was invited into a room at the Standler Hotel in Cleveland and asked if I knew what I was doing there. You naturally say no. Present were John Scalish, the acting boss, Tony Milano, the underboss, John DiMarco, a capo, and Frank Brancato. They explained to me that I had been proposed to be a made member of the La Cosa Nostra and defined the rules and regulations of the organization. They told me that you cannot fool around with narcotics, you cannot own a house 
of prostitutes or have prostitutes working for you. You cannot fool around with a woman that's married to a La Cosa Nostra member. And that whatever illegal activity you engage in, you have to report to the boss and receive permission to engage in that activity. After I was told the rules, I was asked if I still wanted to join the organization. One can still leave at that time, but that person usually accepts. In my case, I joined and became a member of the La Cosa Nostra. Once you accept the rules of membership, they lift a cloth off the table. Underneath is a gun and a dagger. You are told that you now live and die with the dagger and the gun. You die that way and you live that way. You are given a card with a picture of a saint on it. This card is placed in the palm of your hands and lit. You shake the burning card back and forth until it is burned down to ashes. They then pinch your finger and draw blood. And then everyone gives you a kiss on the cheek and says, you are now a member. I later learned that to be invited to be a member, you must have killed somebody and stood up to police pressure. So that's the quote that came directly from him. And I think a lot of, you know, like Hollywood ideas, that comes from this kind of testimony. You know, in Hollywood, you you see these rituals and that's how we know exactly what happened is from these guys that cooperated and gave specific information about the induction ceremony. Angelo and Jimmy Fraziano, the acting bosses of the Los Angeles crime family, were the highest ranking mafia members to ever become federal witnesses until Sammy the Bull happened. Sammy the Bull, even though he wasn't the boss and Jimmy Fraziano was the boss, he was still a higher ranking because he was part of the New York family. Angelo ended up going into Witpro until he pulled the same move that Sammy Gravano did and he got tired of Witpro. He returned to Cleveland and died in his sleep on April 1st, 2006 at 95 years old. All right, that is all the information I have on Big Joe Leonardo and his crazy life inventing the Cleveland Mafia. Thanks so much for hanging out with me, guys. If you are still here, I appreciate you so much. Thanks so much for hanging out with me. I hope you had fun. I had a great time hanging out with you. And I hope you guys all enjoyed this episode. Please don't forget to like, share, subscribe, follow, do all the things. And I'll see you next time. Bye.